Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. It has been a long time since we last released an episode. We took the summer off, but we're back by popular demand, and I have some great news to share. This season, Staffer has its first official sponsor, Wash U at Brookings, a partnership of the Brookings Institution and Washington University in St. Louis, its Olin School of Business. I am extremely excited and grateful for their support. It makes more episodes of Staffer possible. Which brings me to our first episode of our fall season. Among the many storylines that have my attention right now is redistricting. That's the once-in-a-decade process by which new lines are drawn for seats in the House of Representatives. This process has a lot of elements, so if you haven't paid much attention to it since maybe high school, um, I thought it might be worth kind of going through a little bit of that. First, there is the census, which counts everyone in the country, or is supposed to, and based on that count, the 435 seats in the House of Representatives are divided among the states according to their populations. That is called apportionment, and it has already been completed. Some states will stay the same in terms of the number of members that they send to the U.S. House. Some states will send more, and some will send less after 2022. Now, after apportionment comes redistricting. Reapportionment determines how many members of Congress a state will have, Redistricting determines which areas of each state each member of Congress will represent. These lines are redrawn pretty much every 10 years after the census, um, but changes can be made even when the number of members from a delegation remains the same. And by moving the lines, the people who draw the maps can change the partisan performance of a district to make it more Republican or more Democratic. And who draws those maps? Well, it depends on the states. The Constitution is silent on redistricting, even though it gives Congress the authority to determine the time, place, and manner of House and Senate elections. So each state has its own unique process for drawing those lines, which makes it even more complicated. So who better to talk to us about redistricting and her journey as a staffer than Kelly Burton, president of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. The NDRC is dedicated to ensuring that congressional districts are drawn in such a way as to be fair to the people they represent. Kelly's work goes to the very heart of our democracy, which is giving voters the ability to choose their leaders rather than having leaders pick their voters. Kelly is one of the smartest, hardest working, best people I know in politics. I hope that comes through when you listen to the episode. Um, she is a force of personality and a force of wisdom. And it's why she was asked to run the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, not once, but twice. She has been a campaign manager for multiple congressional campaigns, and she started her career working for then-governor of Arizona, Janet Napolitano. Kelly and I spoke on Thursday, September 2nd. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Kelly Burton, welcome to Staffer. Jim Papa, it's so nice to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making time for us and for our listeners. Um, you are someone who I've just admired and enjoyed working with for a long time, and your work today is so relevant. And so I want to get into that. But as you know, I like to start at the beginning. So with that, where did you grow up and what was home life like? 
Well, let me start off by saying thank you for doing this podcast because I also think you are just one of the best people in this business and just have always so enjoyed working with you. And you are the kindest and most wonderful person um, in general, and which is a lot to say in politics. (laughs) Maybe we can wrap it there. That might be a full episode. Thank you, Kelly. Jim Papa, great human. <laughs> Everyone should know. Statement of fact. Yes. But um, but I love this Very podcast nice. and I'm just, I'm so happy that you are doing this. What a contribution to the world. So it's what an honor for me to be here. Um, so to answer your question, I was born in Las Vegas. I grew up in Las Vegas. Um, I grew up in a very diverse working class uh, family and a working class community. Uh, my mom was a teacher. My dad is a physician assistant. My stepdad was a taxi driver. So, uh, you know, just very normal people, not politically active. Um, We didn't really grow up around a lot of political activity generally. Um, But, you know, I lived in a household that always had the news on and we would talk about political issues at dinner. And, um, you know, they all three of my parents represented kind of a cross section of beliefs that really influenced me. I think, you know, my mom, uh, she was a teacher and also a member of the teachers union, who I found out later we would characterize as a drop-off voter um, because she would sort of vote sometimes. Um, uh, But certainly, you know, a Democrat. My my dad is a conservative Republican who grew up in the South. uh, And so, you know, really that defined his beliefs and and where he comes from. And, you know, my stepdad is a recovering hippie who doesn't vote on principle because they lost the revolution in the 60s. And so it's all done. (laughs) So, um, you know, those were kind of the, the beliefs and the uh, people who, you know, influenced me growing up. Um, and so we would have a lot of conversations and discuss a lot around that. But in general, you know, I didn't, there was not a lot of political activity in my neighborhood as a very working class neighborhood, um, you know, with really diverse working class jobs and people and went to public school and, um, you know, that's Vegas. Well, and so after high school, you went to college at the University of Arizona where you studied political science. I did. So yes. um, how did you how did you meet politics? Like how did you come to know about yourself this was something that you wanted to, you know, learn more about and perhaps pursue? Yeah, it's funny. You know, when we um when we would talk about issues, I at when I was growing up, I always had a bent towards social justice. I just I always really was you know, passionate about what was happening in the world and just really would feel deeply the injustices and the inequities and the unfairness around us. And I never understood it. And I would, I remember talking to my parents about it and friends and teachers in high school. I had very good influential history and government teachers, um, as, you know, many people in this business, I think, can point back to. But I just was always really interested and passionate about what was happening in the world, but didn't really know what to do about that because I just didn't grow up or live in an environment where there was a lot of agency or a lot of activity. You know, it's just a working class neighborhood and working class family where people are working to live and survive and, you know, mostly paycheck to paycheck. And the biggest thing you can do is get a job and, you know, provide for your family. And that's hard. And that's the focus. And there just wasn't a lot of activity around me um, to help influence the world. And but I had a passion for those issues and for social justice generally, um, you know, on a cross section of race and gender and socioeconomic inequities. And it just didn't ever really make sense to me. And then when I went to college, college was like the agency to do something about that, right? I remember being on campus and they have that first day where every club in the university puts out a table on the mall and tries to get you to sign up. And my eyes must have been as big as the moon that day. I was like, oh my God, look at all this stuff you can do. 
you in the world? Are you kidding me with this? And I signed up for literally everything you can sign up for. I'm like, yes, students get sweatshops. Yes, I want that. Like domestic violence prevention. Yes, I am into that. Like all the things, you know. This surprises me not at all. Right, right. Not at all. Right. I just like signed up for everything. It was like a running joke with my college friends and I was in literally every club because I was. Right, right. Because I just was like, oh my God, you guys, we can do stuff to fix the world. Did you know that? I didn't know that, you know? Um, And then I really, uh, I didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't have a campaign or political background at all. Um, But one of the things I ended up getting involved with in, in college was the Young Democrats. And we, a friend of mine and I, uh, kind of partnered with one of the political science professors to rebuild the Young Democrat chapter on campus because it had been there and then it kind of died off. And um, to me, it was my first real taste of organizing, which I love. Like I'm I'm an organizer at heart. And that was my first kind of organizing gig to really rebuild this um, this organization on campus. But I really saw it as a way to help people get involved, right? To really help other students have agency um, to do something and to get engaged. It was a way we linked up with um, the Tucson Democratic Party and with the campaign infrastructure for local races in Tucson. And it was a way to link up students and young people being involved in those campaigns, which I thought was very cool. Um, And so it was kind of the first way that I saw not only the power of organizing, but also the impact that you can have when you get involved and get other people involved. Uh, And so that was a a kind of an anchoring experience of mine uh, at the the U of A. Yeah. Well, and right after that, you made your way uh, to the governor's office or to working for the administration for then governor Janet Napolitano. Um, Two-part question. One is, how did you get there, right? So what was the pathway for you to get such a cool job uh, after your undergraduate years? And two, as I understand it, your title was something like director of special projects. Right. So what are special projects? <laughs> what does that mean? Right, right. It's all good questions. All good questions. Um, yeah, this is the genius of your podcast, just as a side comment, because these this, these are the steps and paths that you really don't know unless you're, you know, in it as a staffer. And it's like, how does the, what, what when you look back, looks like a straight line and you realize it's not a straight line at all. Yeah. Um, well, so this, the story is that... That um, through the Young Democrats, a very good friend of mine, uh, Sheila Bappett, shout out Sheila if you're in the world and listening, um, we we were very actively working on campaigns while we were students. And so I'm I'm old. So this is like 2000, you know, 2002, right after redistricting year, actually. And we had been working on some congressional campaigns in Tucson um, as as the kind of Young Democratic representation on those campaigns. Um, And through that, I met a candidate who was running for Congress um, in a new district that had been created in Tucson because of redistricting. And she asked me if I would come work for her after graduation as her field director. Um, So I was fired up like that. I was like, yes, I have no idea what that means, but that's a job after college. And, you know, in my background, like you just need a job, like get a job. And so that was a way to have a job on a campaign, like win-win. And so I took a job on that campaign as the field director right after college. And um, we lost, which we should have lost. I I learned that later. Um, And so that was... um, the what happens back then the primaries were very late in Arizona and so when you lose a democratic primary you all just go work for the democrat for the state democratic party to finish out the election mm-hmm. so that's what i did i didn't know that but that's what i did they just kind of like took all the the field directors and field organizers um and you finish out the campaign at the party um and the um that was the year that Janet Napolitano was running for governor that was 2002 
And so because of clean elections in Arizona, the actual governor's campaign is really small because the budget is really small. And so the Democratic Party is the field infrastructure. It is the place where, you know, just all the staff and all the organizing is happening from the party. So I learned a ton and I worked um, at the Arizona Democratic Party for the rest of that cycle um, and then ended up getting a job in um, the governor's office, you know, the following year um, through that experience, having met her campaign and having met people who worked on the campaign. Uh, and that's how I landed. Uh, I started actually in the division for women working on policy issues, um, economic development, uh, um, domestic violence prevention, and, and particularly through the lens of, of women's issues, uh, and then very quickly expanded to, um, you know, be involved in a whole portfolio, range of portfolio items with her. Oh, that's neat. At, which is why this, the director of special projects ended up being an undefined, yeah. <laughs> you know, because as you know, like when you're a young person in an office where a million things need to get done, um, sometimes the person who's willing to take them on is the person who gets those jobs. And that was certainly me in my early 20s in the governor's that's office. That's right. And sometimes like you, you know, week one, you have priorities one through five. And then by week three, like, you know, three of those are out the window and there are three new ones that need a time and attention from staff. And exactly. Somebody with a, you know, a generalist portfolio can be assigned to those. Exactly. It's that meeting where you just everyone's just kind of looking around, looking around like who can take that action <laughs> item, you know. <laughs> right. Right. Um okay, so after that so you then you go to Harvard, you get a, a master's degree. Um and in 2006, you begin as campaign manager to somebody who I got to know uh, thanks to your good work in getting him elected, and that was Harry Mitchell uh, from Arizona. And, you know, you have so much experience in districts like his, uh, and that has been that has informed your career. Um, and these are known as frontline districts, right, where it's very difficult for Democrats to run and win. Um since most people who work on Capitol Hill, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, represent safe districts where their member will be reliably reelected, what's something that you think staff who work for some of those members might know about the existence of, you know, running in and representing frontline districts? It's a really thoughtful question. And for those of you listening who don't know this, um, Jim Papa was the maestro <laughs> of the frontline program and the frontline districts. Okay. And is but that wasn't best the equipped. I know, but Jim Papa is the best person equipped to answer this question. So I just want to point that out. Maybe I'm that's happy why to do I my like part. It so much. But right, Maybe exactly. That's why I like it so much. <laughs> um, I feel like every cycle, uh, I would call Jim and be like, "Okay, tell me again about how you manage the frontline program." <laughs> well, the, the, I mean, well, and some of the dynamic that every you know majority party has to deal with is that they need to satisfy right 90% of their caucus who will be reliably reelected and right. wants you know big big things but they have to do it in a way that works politically for the 10% of their members on which like the majority hinges right um and sometimes getting them to see eye to eye with one another is tough and so you've you've lived through those districts so what's it like you know yeah. on the ground well the the truth of campaigning applies to every district, right? Which is you have to know your community. You have to know the people who live there and you have to meet them where they are and you have to be able to authentically speak for them and represent them. That is your job. And 
the best members do that well. And the thing that makes every district unique, right, is who are those voters? Who are those people? Who are you trying to authentically connect with and represent? And what does that mean? And that inherently, you know, provides or or creates a difference between members who are coming to authentically represent, you know, very urban communities or the heart of a city or, you know, a, a super safe progressive community that um, is more like my stepdad wondering, like, well, how come we're not doing more on the revolution, you know? Um, or you have other districts where the authentic representation of that district is people more like my dad, who is a moderate, but, you know, a lean conservative Republican who... Um, believes that government has a role, but that it should be limited. And, you know, their job is really just to make sure that people have the tools they need to live their own life. And there's value in that belief, too. And so authentically representing those two different viewpoints is, is um, you know, leads to a different sense of what needs to happen from our government. The thing about the frontline districts is that you often have both of those perspectives in the same district. And that, I think, is what makes them so uniquely wonderful. Um, and so representative in, in many ways of our country because you have both you know, a cross-section of competing viewpoints, similar like my childhood, right, where you are trying to reconcile those viewpoints with an equal level of value to those beliefs and then a, a uniformity or a, a vision for governing that can reconcile what a cross-section of people in that district want. And that is the job of a frontline member. And it's hard. It's, it's, a, it's a hard balance to walk. But I think if you stay true to the ultimate goal of authentically representing the people who live in your community, then you can do that well. And I think that's what makes the frontline members so valuable in Congress is because they are having to do that and 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 be the thing we want our government to be, which is problem solving and solutions that work for America. And I think, um, you know, every member does that and every member should do that. And I think the frontline districts have to reconcile different viewpoints within their district that is tricky. It's hard. And, you know, I think this is one of the things that makes Speaker Pelosi so effective and and for sure, hands down, no question about it, this best speaker we've ever had in this nation, literally ever, because she knows how to keep the main thing the main thing, which is representing the people of this country through her caucus and through the members. And, you know, one thing she says a lot is the beauty is in the mix, right? The beauty is in the mix of the members and the caucus and, and reconciling all of those viewpoints is the work of Congress. It is the work of America. So. Okay, your answer was far better than mine. So I'm I'm really glad I asked you to answer that because uh, it was well, so beautifully stated. It it really was beautifully stated and and accurately described. Um, so it's it, it's no surprise uh, you were then asked to uh, work at the DCCC. Uh, on the frontline program, so incumbent retention, making sure that class of of elected leaders was was reelected, and then you became its executive director, not once but twice, which is such a testament to your skill, the respect that people have for you, and your endurance, because these jobs take a lot out of people. Truly, you don't see people do those jobs really very often for two cycles in a row, and you did. Um, and it just, it speaks volumes and, and just one other note leading to a question for you. Um, people who get to work at party committees 
really tend to be sort of the best of campaign managers, right? I mean, each year we sort of look out who are the the best campaign managers out there. Who can we bring to Washington to to work with campaigns all over the country? Um, Having been a campaign manager for multiple campaigns and at the DCCC, you've seen kind of the apex campaign management um, typology and, and, and led them. What is it in your mind that makes, you know, the, the apex level campaign manager? Well, I will answer your question, but let me say this, which is if we only hired the apex campaign managers, I would never have been hired mm. be, by the DCCC because when I was in, as you mentioned, I went to grad school at Harvard. That was 2006. Um, for that race, that 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 Harry Mitchell campaign, um, I was still in graduate school when I took that job in Boston, right? Oh, my gosh. So I, t- I took a job. <laughs> I was offered a job um, to be Harry Mitchell's campaign manager while I still had – three months left of graduate school and was legit flying across the country almost every weekend, taking red eyes, like come like do my classes, fly across the country, be in Phoenix for the weekend and then take a red eye back, do my class. I did that too many times. I was writing papers from airports. Like it was not pretty. And I remember talking with Karen Johansson, who was the head of the DCCC in 2006, who needed to vet me before they w- would approve me being hired on this campaign. And I was like, cool. So here's the deal. I was talking to her from the Kennedy School lobby, like missing class to take this call. I'm like, cool. So it's going to be fine. Like, it's fine. I just have to finish out school. Don't worry. And she's like, are we sure? You know? <laughs> and today I wouldn't get hired. The D-Trip would shut that down. They'd be like, you cannot hire that person. Um, and so I will just start by saying like, don't, don't uh, cut out or, or cut off opportunities for people who may seem like they can do the job, even if it's not your sort of standard traditional campaign experience or campaign resume, because literally every job I've ever had, I, I did not have the sort of quote unquote standard apex resume for that yeah, job. Such um, a good point. Such an important point. But, I, but, you know, but to your question, I've learned a lot about just what makes a good manager generally. And I think one of the things that is terrific about campaigns as a profession is that by definition, campaigns give terrific opportunities to young people that might be really hard to find in other professions, right? So I was a campaign manager at 25. I didn't know anything. I, Like I said, I was in grad school and then I came out of grad school and I took on this job. And yes, I had worked on campaigns and I had been an organizer and I had a lot of, you know, seemingly relevant background, but I'd never run a budget. I'd never hired staff before, right? And so um, really given, being given in that opportunity at uh, the young age of 25 to run something that big to manage staff and have a multi-million dollar budget is just such an opportunity that I learned a ton. And I'm so grateful for the people, including Harry Mitchell and the DCCC and Janet Napolitano and all these people in my life who have really taken a risk on me um, and, and given me those opportunities that I probably shouldn't have any business having been given, right? <laughs> given my private my previous experience. And so I'm just really grateful that people did take a chance and a risk on me. And I think we need to do that for young people generally, um, particularly from diverse backgrounds and particularly from diverse experiences. And I think campaigns are a 
are a profession where we do that. And the opportunity to soar if and when you like put your heart into something is high in the in the political space. And um, and so I just I think that that's a really terrific, unique example or a unique benefit of working in politics. Yeah. Um, you as you are currently, you've had the opportunity to build and run numerous organizations. Um, so tell me about your experience as a leader and what you've learned about yourself, um, you know, things that you consider yourself good at and, and you like doing, uh, but also some things that, you know, you consider perhaps weaknesses that you look to others to support you on. It's a it's a great question. Um, I'm 40 now, so I've put a lot of thought into this question. I'm ancient, and so, <laughs> oh, um, uh, you know, I think that my well, I think that the key to running an organization is to provide the vision and the direction and the objectives of where things need to go, and then to hire very good, smart people who know how to get there and can operationalize and execute the act of getting there. You know, the the I always, um, and I've said this, you know, since my very first jobs, like my job as a quote unquote leader was to serve, is to serve the people who are in the jobs to do, to get them what they need to do their job. Right. And so I work for them. I, and I would say that a lot, like I work for you. What do you need to do the thing that you have to do? And my job is to help set the vision and to help set the, you know, direction of where we're going. But, but I then my job as a leader is to get the tools into the hands of the people who can get there and can know how to get there and to really defer to them and to lift up their voices and their expertise um, and their leadership in the work itself. And I think that that applies at every level of an organization, right? I mean, we have terrific, hugely experienced and and smart and wonderful directors at the NDRC right now who know how to do their jobs. And, you know, our key is just to let them soar and let them shine and, and do the work that they know how to do. And the same is true at every level of the organization. You know, our state directors know their states and our digital organizers know how to organize and our email team knows how to do email and, um, you know, on down the line. And we need to, as leaders of the organization, just get the tools in the hands of those folks so that they can do the work that they do. And then, you know, we have to have accountability and have metrics and have tracking and, and all those things that keep us on track. Um, but I think it really does come down to setting a vision, but then hiring great people who can can do that work to execute the vision because they know how to do that. That's a great transition to talking about your current work, uh, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, which did not exist when you yeah. and I started in politics. <laughs> That's it right. exists today <laughs> because of you. Um, so for our listeners, can you describe what the organization is and what it's committed to? Sure. Um, well, the speaking of great people that I've had the opportunity to work for, um, former Attorney General Eric Holder leads the NDRC. And, uh, you know, I have helped him kick this off and, and get this started uh, in 2017 with the support and leadership of Speaker Pelosi and other leaders in our party, including Barack Obama, um, who really saw and understood the need for um, 
you know, some entity within the party to be focused on redistricting. Um, just to rewind the cassette tape, if you will, you know, I think what we saw in the previous decade is that the gerrymandering that the Republicans did on the congressional and state legislative maps in 2011, following the 2010 census and the 2010 um, shellacking, as Barack Obama said, when Democrats lost everything, really had a detrimental impact on our democracy for a decade. And I mean, you saw it, Jim, you were in Congress watching, you know, what these Tea Party Republicans and, you know, what what governing is like when you're dealing with representation from gerrymandered districts. It's it's hard and it's not reflective of America. And it certainly doesn't lend itself to problem solving. And so as the next round of redistricting was coming up, there was a real need and attention to making sure that that we as Democrats and progressives were ready for the next round and that we didn't let happen what happened last time where the Republicans ran the table on us happen again. And that takes work and it takes preparation and it takes intention and it takes strategy. And you can't start redistricting planning and executing when redistricting starts. You have to start it early to set the table. Um, so that's a long wind up to say that we started the NDRC with the intention of being that centralized hub for a comprehensive redistricting strategy so that we could take all of the tools for how you can influence redistricting and bring them into one place and then be strategic about which of those tools you deploy in the states, depending on what is needed for that state. It's sort of a committee model, right? It's like the DCCC is the hub for house races and has the tools and the and the resources and the targeting and the data and the staffing and all the things that you need to do that well, um, but then deploys those differently district by district depending on the strategy. And, and redistricting is the same thing because the actual map drawing is executed in the states and it's different in every state and it's tricky and it's nuanced and it's parochial and it really needs its own strategy state by state, but it also needs a centralized place to go for a comprehensive strategy. And so NDRC is both. We are that comprehensive plan and strategy, and then we also are customizing the work we do in the states um, to to effectively influence the maps. And what we are trying to ladder up to is fair maps around the country. That is what we want. We don't want to gerrymander for Democrats. We don't want to break the system in our favor, right? We don't want to do to them what they did to us for the last decade. We want the system to work. We want government to work. We want the districts to be fair so that the elections can be fair and the voters get to decide who the elected official is, not the lines, right? And, and that's what we want. And so we are fighting for that state by state uh, right now. Redistricting is happening. So you use the word fair. How, how is a fair map, you know, uh, how, how should one determine whether a map is fair or unfair? It's a, it's a very good question. <laughs> and um, I, there's two ways to, to think about fairness. One is in the process and then the other is in the outcomes, right? So you do need a fair process in order to get a fair map. You know, in theory, people could go into a back room and not talk to anyone and produce a fair map from that process. Unlikely, <laughs> let's be real, um, because they're not getting the feedback from the community that's important. Um, but 
you need both. You need a fair process, uh, which is transparency, public participation, really hearing from the community about what works for that community. You know, where does the community define a community of interest? You know, is it where where do people grocery shop? What are the economic interests of that community? What what where you know how does the freeway and the transportation corridors affect how people live in that area? You know, you can't really know that unless you're there, and that's a really important element of trying to draw districts that um, reflect different communities, right? So you got to hear from people. You got to get public participation in that in order to know how to draw maps accordingly. So that's step one is the process. And then step two is the outcome of the maps. And one of the things to look for when you're looking for a fair map is responsiveness, right? By definition, a map is fair if the voters are the ones that are determining the outcome of that election. And you can see that when you match up election results to election outcomes, right? And if they are commiserate, right? If they if they reflect each other, where what the voters wanted is what happened in the election, then you're on the right track. Um, but if you have what we've had, for example, in states like Ohio or Wisconsin or, you know, North Carolina for most of the decade, where you have, you know, the for example, in Ohio, you have Republicans generally win, you know, maybe 52, 53 percent of the congressional vote, but but consistently wins 75% of the seats. And no seats have turned hands in Ohio, even though we've had a pretty volatile decade. So that is an example of a map that's not fair. It's not responsive. The voters are telling you they want an outcome, and that is not the outcome that happens in the election. Um, And now, you know, with data, you can tell whether you don't have to wait until the election happens to know whether it's fair. You can tell, you know, based on data and and analytics, you know, how a district is going to perform to be able to say, like, this one, this map is gerrymandered, this map is not going to be responsive to the voters. The the U.S. Census just uh, it completed its its um, you know tallies a number of months ago, but it just released a lot of data um, in the, just a few weeks ago. What does that data mean uh, from a redistricting perspective, based on your analysis? Um. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? Who knew that we'd be here talking about the census? But um, <laughs> here we are. Um, The census confirmed what we all know, which is that the country is getting more diverse and it is also getting more urban and suburban, right? It's getting less rural. So you have more people of color that are living more in urban and suburban communities and that the rural parts of this nation are shrinking. That is what the census confirmed. And the thing that matters about that for redistricting is that the whole point of redistricting, the whole reason that we do redistricting is because you have to adjust the districts to account for population changes, right? That is the that is the inherent power of one person, one vote, right? Which is like a central tenet of this nation is that one person gets one vote. Those votes are treated equally and, and um, that are elected structures and and governing structures reflect that and represent that. It's why the voter suppression laws in the states are such a problem because they dilute that. We are a country that values one person, one vote. What happens with population is that it shifts over the course of the decade, right? So people move, people, they're born, they die, the things change. And so every decade, you have to redraw the lines to reset them so that there's population equity or equality around across the districts so that in you know in theory we can execute one person one vote right that's like why we have to do it so the thing that is really interesting and important about the census data is that districts should reflect what the census data is telling us which means at the end of redistricting we should have 
more districts that represent urban and suburban communities where voters of color and communities of color have an ability to impact the outcome of those elections. And we should have fewer rural districts because there are fewer people in rural districts in this nation. Like, period. End of story. That is that is fair. That is what's happening in the nation. And the district should reflect that. The reason we should all be so worried about gerrymandering is because Those dynamics right now in this moment work against the Republicans, which means if the Republicans just follow truthfully and fairly the direction of where this country is going and growing, they will lose power because they are making an active choice not to address the demographic and geographic changes of this country through policy and by doing what we talked about earlier, where you authentically meet people where they are and you go try to learn them and represent them, they are actively choosing not to do that. And they are maintaining a set of policies and beliefs that do not reflect where this country is going and growing. And so for them to maintain power, they have to manipulate the structures of democracy. That is what is happening. That's why they're doing the voter suppression laws. It's why they're going to gerrymander these maps. It's because they cannot just naturally flow with where this country is going and hold on to power, given the fact that they're making an active choice not to adjust their policies, period. That's the deal. And so for us, if maps are fair, Democrats are going to do fine. We are in line with where the country is going and growing. But again, that doesn't mean we should be forever. We don't want to break it in our favor so that we're locking in our own power. We want the voters to decide. And that means that it is then incumbent upon us to also stay in line with the voters and to continue to hear from them and talk with them and listen to them and have them be the determinant voices in our democracy, which is how it should be. And I wish the Republicans wanted that too, but right now they do not. So here we are. It is so it is both crucially important to the idea of a democracy that redistricting be done fairly. It is also righteous. That right. is, if you right that is if you are part of a political party, it doesn't matter which one it is, that cannot win within a certain geography based on fair maps, it is the party that must change. And both right. parties have changed many times That's right. over the arc of our history. That's right. That's They're right. They're supposed to evolve rather than mute a whole segment of the electorate. Exactly. Exactly. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. It it is dangerous. And a point you made earlier, it's so important. These are once in a decade, by and large, uh, decisions. And if you get them wrong, you have to live with them for a long time. Yes. And 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 when we are in an international global competition against other countries, we've got a lot of stuff to get done and to get done. That's right. right. We don't really have a decade to waste. That's right. A hundred percent. That's a hundred percent right. And, you know, I feel a little bit like um, one one parallel I, I have drawn and I've been trying to work this out in my own head is um, I feel like those of us who are in democracy work, right, and we and we do this for a living and we are we are like laser focused on exactly what you just said. Um, we we haven't yet figured out how to connect that urgency to real people's lives. It reminds me a little bit of like early climate change, right? Where like yeah. when you had years ago when you had scientists and people who really understand climate and they're like, oh my God, you guys, it's really bad. It's like, it's really bad. And we have to do something about it now. And the rest of us are like, what about the polar bears? I don't get it. You know, are you sure? It doesn't, it's, it's that bad. And now, literally today, we're seeing the repercussions of that with yes. massive flooding in New York and New Jersey and people dying literally today because of climate change. Like that is real. And 
they tried to warn us, you know, and they tried to warn the global elected officials and global leaders and and the leaders here. And, you know, there's still a lot we can do. But to your point about like, we don't have time to waste, you know, we didn't have time to waste then we don't have time to waste now. And I feel like there's a little bit of that happening in the democracy space where we're like, no, for real, it's really bad. Like It's going to be really bad. But, you know, the actual implications of how bad aren't obvious right now and they're not coming for a while. But once they get here, it's too late to unwind them. Um, and there's a parallel there that I think it really, you know, we need to to really try to figure out how to land this this message so that, you know, the we can effectively communicate the urgency that that I think people need to feel about our democracy because it's real. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about work with other democratic organizations. And I know you've gotten a ton of support from across the democratic side of the aisle. Um, at times, I'm sure there must be some tensions where what you are advocating for is a different process that requires, you know, giving up an advantage, giving up, you know, right, holding the pen. How do you navigate some of that in in states around the country? Um, it's a it's a really thoughtful question, and you know it's something that we thought about literally since the very beginning, um, which is that there are a lot of great people who do this work already, right? And there have been organizations that have been working on redistricting and um, power building and and you know voting rights for years and decades, and there's real value in that work. And there's people who know their states better than we ever will, and you know members who know their districts better than we ever will, and there's real wealth and of knowledge in all of that. And, um, you know, one thing that A.G. Holder told us at the very, very beginning of NDRC was he said, I would like to get an A in the grade of works well with others. That is, we we are here to do the work with people who already have the knowledge. And, you know, that is important to us. Um, and it's part of his story. It's part of my story also to just really, you know, work in partnership with people and, and not presume you know more than they do or not presume that you can do the work. Um, you know, if if something is working that already exists, well, let's do that. You know, no reason to duplicate, no reason to replicate. And so one thing we've been asking ourselves the whole time is where can we add value? You know, what is additive? Where is there a need? And let's fill that need. And that is, you know, how I think um, we have been successful in, in working with folks. And uh, I hope we've gotten a, an A on that grade. Um, I think we have. Um, but, you know, part of it is really recognizing the the great work that's already happening in the states and and nationally on these issues and other issues and then figuring out how to how to be additive to that um so and you know that's also i think a good lesson for for staff and for leaders everywhere <laughs> well your creation of this organization and your leadership of it uh has given me so much optimism for the future truly um Yay! when people ask me if you could change anything about our democracy or our constitution what would it be and the two things that I always say are public financing of campaigns and fair congressional districts that are representational of the people who live there and the states that they come from. Oh, that's so nice of you to say. And I appreciate that very much. And, um, you know, I think um, thank you for that. And, um, you know, the time is now. It's happening now. And, um, you know, the the work is in the states and the work is happening. And uh, there's so, so many ways to get involved. So if folks want to get involved, hit me up. Um, we, we it, you know, we have a lot of ways that people can get involved in the democracy. And I'll just say, you know, to this point real quick, um, that's one of the things that I think is really exciting about redistricting is that it's kind of like a 
campaign in that it's going to happen and then it's going to end, right? And so there is a window and an opportunity to influence it. Um, It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I mean, this is going to, maps are going to be being drawn for months and months, um, but it is, it does have a deadline similar like a campaign. And so the ability to organize and to, you know, feel urgency around an end goal, uh, which is, I think, a lot of what us staffers on campaigns really thrive on. And, and, you know, that's an element of a campaign dynamic um, also exists on redistricting. And so the the opportunity to impact is high. Uh, The time is limited, um, but the work matters. Well, okay. So speaking of limited time, um, I want to make use of just the the few minutes we have with you. I have a couple of recurring segments that I like to ask all of our guests. So one of the questions I like to ask folks is called In the Vault. Uh, Tell me about a time that you made a mistake and what you learned from it. In the vault. Okay, here we go. So um, let's get on the wind back machine. (laughs) And remember 2012, uh, which, as you know, was the first cycle of a redistricting year. And um, in California, the maps changed quite a bit um, from the maps before in in 2010 to the new maps in 2012 because there was a commission that drew fair maps. And so it was really the first time that the DCCC needed to engage in California. Um, prior to that, there just there were no competitive seats. It was mostly incumbent protection. We just didn't do California is like an island on the other side of the country. It's like all contained. It just kind of does its own thing. And after the maps in California, uh, there was a bunch of new seats because the the commission unlocked the incumbent protection that was inherent in the map and created more competitiveness, which is more commiserate with the voters of California. So we had all these new. Um, districts, and we had to go meet the state of California <laughs> as the DCCC. And California wasn't really interested in us coming. They <laughs> they were fine without us. And so um, one, learned a ton about you know how to go uh, really build relationships from the ground up as a national committee, uh, which, you know, there are a million stories about how that went well and maybe not so well in some situations. We're better now uh, as we kept on the decade. But, you know, there was just a system of doing things and and we came in uh, and and really needed to, to meet and, and show a level of deference to the state of California and the infrastructure there. But the other thing we learned was the top two election, which was not a situation that we had ever really dealt with before and didn't really understand what could happen in a top two race with too many people on the ballot. And in that primary, lost a district in the primary because of top two that we totally caught us by surprise. We were not prepared to lose that seat um, and took took a competitive seat that we would won, that we should have won and then did go on to win uh, right off the table in the primary in California um, in 2012. And it was not good. It was yeah. not good. So we learned a ton about top two and about how to not uh, miss anything. Uh, and I got to be real, I'm applying that to here even now because sure. we are watching maps that no one thinks we're watching to you know make sure that we're not surprised by anything because that, that surprise of losing that race in a primary will, will stay with me forever. You know, uh, since you were executive director of the D-Trip twice, you have a lot of experience winning races and the excitement that comes with that, but also losing races, as, as you've just described. Um, as, as a sports fan, I often stay up real late the night of the championship, um, not just to watch the game and, and the afterwards. I like to see what the losing coach has to say. And they typically, mm. you know, you have to wait like an extra half an hour for that. Um, what have you said? You know, what do you say? 
to folks who have just, you know, committed their lives to winning a race and coming up short in that moment? The, what you say is different if the system is rigged versus if it's not, not going to lie, right? That we spent a lot of years trying to win these races on gerrymandered maps where you're just working uphill with systemic structures that are working against you in a way that is overcomable, right? I mean, it took an existential threat from an autocratic president to overcome the barrier of these maps in 2018. And it shouldn't have to come to that, right? And so one of the experiences that we had in 2014 and 2016 was just really trying to um, keep people motivated and to do the best that we could, but knowing that we're working in a system that is just inherently rigged against us. And, you know, there are communities in our nation that have dealt with that and are dealing with that every day. And there are people that, you know, just feel that injustice in their life every day. And um, so I don't, you know, certainly the structures of our maps and running campaigns on that is just, you know, a a tiny little example of that. But I, I do think that when the, when the system is rigged, it's hard and right. it's not fair. And, you know, anything that you do um, is harder and that's it shouldn't be like that. That's and, right. you know, we had one election night to your point about the losing team. We had one election night where the only districts on the board were just that we won were districts that we won through court because the courts undid the gerrymander. And that was real, you know, or you had an experience like, um, you know, I think you're the staffers among us listening can appreciate this where, you know, in 2014, we lost seats in the House, um, but it was really bad year. And the work that we did prevented additional losses. Right. And and we knew and we know that that work mattered because we only lost 13 seats. We didn't lose like 25 seats, which is what we could have lost. But, you know, you can't go touting at the rooftops like we only lost 13 seats, guys. You know, like that doesn't right. work. Such a good and important right? point. And yes. but like proving that negative is hard and celebrating that as a success is hard. Um, you know, and trying to keep people motivated um even within those structures is hard and tricky. And, you know, we're just do our best every day. Keep okay. the main thing the main thing, like it, my it, husband and I say. Exactly. I like that. Um, okay, last question for you. Sure. If I were to succeed in raising money to build a Hall of Fame to staffers on the National Mall. Ooh. Who would you nominate for inclusion in the Stafford Hall of Fame? Um, Well, that's an easy one because I would nominate my husband, who is a (laughs) wonderful human. Shout out Bill Burton. Yes, absolutely. Who has amazing staffer stories that he could take up entire podcasts, um, (laughs) but just, you know, has really – his life story is is one we could spend an entire episode on and the work that he did on the Hill and then with, you know, presidential campaigns with the Obama campaign and um, also starting new organizations. Um, you know, I just, I, um, I have, I revere him and um, he's wonderful and I would nominate him for. Oh, he is welcome through the door. I'll be <laughs> working on the bronze bust. There we after go. We, after That's we hang right. up. Make sure it has the curly hair. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, such a good nominee. And I agree with everything you said about Bill. Um, Kelly, thank you. Uh, truly, I, I've said it throughout the program. I, I so admire who you are, what you've done, and what you're working on. And it is just so important uh, to the, the future of the country. So thank you for giving us and our listeners your time. 
Well, back at you. Thank you for everything you are doing and have done and for your leadership and friendship. And you're wonderful. Right back at you. Likewise. All right, man. Take care. Take care. You too. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.